When I stop and think about it, there's a lot going on in my mind. I might be thinking about what I'm trying to get done today or what's on the agenda for later. I might be thinking about what might happen in some situation, or I might be replaying some awkward situation from the past over and over again. Regardless, we all do this. We all talk to ourselves in our minds about big things and about little things. And those stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves matter for how we interact with others and for how we behave. Rachel Wernicke is a clinical psychologist and leadership coach, currently serving as an associate dean and chief mental health officer at George Mason University. She's also a U.S. Army veteran, and in today's episode, we talk with her about self-talk, what it is, why it matters, and how it can be harmful or helpful. Join us for this deep and important conversation with Rachel Wernicke. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Well, Rachel Wernicke, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thank you. I am super excited to be here. We are We're just excited to yeah, have you. We are yes, just as excited. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to talk about a variety of things here today, and it's going to be really important and interesting, I think, for all of our listeners. But I'd like for us to start maybe just with you telling us a little bit about your background and also just tell us about this idea of self-talk. What is that and, and maybe a little why it matters? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so I'm a psychologist, but I actually began my career um, as an army officer. So some years ago, um, and spent some time in the regular army in Germany, and then in the reserves. And actually, it was when I was in the army that I found my way to psychology, because trying to help soldiers and families, you know, live their lives and do their jobs involves some psychology, and I didn't know anything about it. So I started studying it. And um, and then eventually left so that I could go to grad school. Um, and, you know, along the way, have done a lot of work in psychotherapy, but have been in leadership roles along the way. And that's what's gotten me interested in the psychology of leadership. Um, and so now, in addition to continuing to work with mental health, um, I also um, work as a leadership coach. And I think that self-talk is super important. And that comes up in my work with therapy clients. It comes up in my work with coaching clients. It, kind of, it comes up in my own work with myself, you know, and it's this idea, self-talk is this idea that we have a voice in our head, right? Like our dialogue that's kind of running all the time. Um, and we're not always aware of it, but even if we're not aware of it, it's still powerful and it influences our moods and it influences our behaviors. And we can't always control what happens in the world. I mean, we know that, right? Like the last year is an awesome example of that. But we can figure out how to relate to our world and our situations differently. And engaging with our self-talk is is one of the ways that we can do that. Yeah. So this is a message of hope. <laughs> that yeah. You know. Yes. Totally a message of hope. Because listen, Ben, I mean, you and I know this. How many times have we had senior executives in tears behind closed doors yeah. when we're doing engagements? And, and this is a message of hope because you don't have to accept the negative thoughts that go through your mind all the time. There is actually evidence-based ways to get yourself to a better 
place. I mean, this is the whole realm of psychotherapy. And we're kind of going to, I don't know, this is kind of like psychotherapy in a nutshell a little bit this episode. And you can, if you have those negative self-talk things that just go through, they may have been going on for so many years, you don't even realize it anymore. Oh, yeah. And if if you don't want to be in a negative zone, this is the episode with you. And Rachel is a person to talk about it because she's so pro on this stuff. Well, I think you're exactly right. Thank you, Chris. But, you know, I mean, this self-talk, we've, we've always lived with it. And the way it shows up in our lives right now is informed by what we were exposed to as we grew up and, and our recent experiences, too. So, you know, it's shaped by our lives. But we can also, once we become aware of it, try to reshape it if it's not helpful. Right. Now, what do you think about the biology? Some people just have, some people will be a little bit of a negative Nancy. I don't know. You see the pie chart, right? Mm -hmm. 40% is your biology, mm -hmm. 10% is your environment, and the rest is how good or bad your parents were or something, right? <laughs> well, well, right. And so, <laughs> I mean, true. You know, some of us are more vulnerable um, to that kind of thinking, um, a, a negative type of thinking, more of a depressive or anxious type thinking. But I don't think that that's a recipe for, you know, now I have to live with unhelpful self-talk. We can be aware of the challenges that we're born with or the challenges we've been exposed to and still work with them, right? So it, even if I have a tendency to go down a depressive, ruminative path, once I know that, then I can work with that in a different way. Yeah. So you just used a word, which I think is is important and is a concept that's an important. You uh, said ruminative. And what is rumination? And um, mm -hmm. How does it kind of tie into this idea of self-talk? Yeah. So I guess, you know, kind of a, a simple lay definition of rumination is just getting stuck in, in your negative thought patterns and really sort of swimming in them in a way that's not helpful. And so even if you try to think about something else, your brain kind of pulls you back to depressive thinking. And I'll say it's that really chronic kind of rumination that's problematic because we always have, all of us have like negative thoughts that pop into our brains from time to time, or we might have a bad day here and there. But if we're really stuck, then that's where we can really see the influence on our mood and on our behavior. And this shows up in our personal lives. It definitely shows up in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what do you do with leaders who are stuck in kind of that, that state of rumination, thinking about, um, you know, what possibly could go wrong with every single situation, or maybe even just thinking about like, you know, an awkward social situation in the past where they feel embarrassed and it just keeps on going through. I, I, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, if you've got the kind of relationship with that leader where you can actually talk to them about that self-talk, right? To say, hey, you know, this is a pattern I'm noticing. And where when you are getting ready to go and speak to a group of people, for example, that you start to talk to yourself in a way that actually is going to make you more afraid of it, or I can see that you want to avoid going into that meeting. Um, can we talk a little bit about sort of what's going on in your mind there? And it might be that you're telling yourself some things that aren't actually all that helpful. And we can maybe help you think about how to coach yourself differently. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Right. So a lot of this stuff comes out of like the mindfulness, right? It's hard to address your self-talk if you're not mindful, except the packaging of mindfulness. Like I don't own a yoga mat, right? And I feel like if <laughs> shocking, you say it, shocking, <laughs> partly because I can't help but laugh when I'm at a yoga class, right? They're like, get out of here. This is serious, right? So, so 
It, right? Mindfulness and the common vernacular and out there is uh, there's always somebody with a yoga mat with some Zen look on their face. There's mm -hmm. not a curmudgeon like myself talking mindfulness. What is mindfulness? And is it just for hippies? Well, <laughs> I hope not because <laughs> I am not a hippie and I use it all the time. Um, but yeah, you're right. It kind of has this reputation of being sort of woo-woo. And, and I think it can turn some people off until you recognize one that has been around for thousands of years. So there must be some utility in it. And we've also brought it into science. And so in, particularly in the behavioral sciences, we have kind of separated out um, what are some spiritual connections and religious connections that are very helpful and um, useful to some people, but a lot of people like kind of more of the um, secular understanding of it, which is really just mindfulness is the the practice of being aware um, in the present moment, you know, without judgment, which is hard, but it helps us when we can do that, we can notice what's going on inside our heads and with our feelings, we can notice our intentions before we act. So it's really just a practice of awareness and acceptance. Yeah. So I wonder why, or I guess I'd like to get your reaction to this, you know, do, are people less aware um, nowadays because we're so busy or what leads to, I guess, a lack of mindfulness or a lack of awareness um, about yourself, about your way you're thinking about things? What do you think? Well, I guess, you know, I do think that we are less aware now because we have so many opportunities for distraction and mm. um, it can be easy to kind of go through life mindlessly instead of mindfully, right? So, especially if we're just allowing ourselves to be pulled by the distractions of our phone or, you know, our task lists and that kind of thing. And I also think that mindfulness is not something that we necessarily automatically know how to do. I think we have to learn how to do it because the concept of stepping back in your own mind to observe your mind is a little, you know, you got to kind of sit with that for a bit. People are like, what? I can observe my thinking? Um, don't thoughts just happen and they go where they're going to go? Well, that's true, but you can watch that. Um, but we have to learn how to do that. You know, an example of my own life that was helpful to me on the mindful stuff. So look here, curmudgeons and mindfulness. Tell me if that's not an airport <laughs> bookstore not title, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but getting packed and out the door. So my dad was an Air Force colonel and it was always, get out the door. Where's your gear? Gah, gah, gah. <laughs> and so, and like my wife is way more chill about going somewhere, you hmm. know? If I, if, oh, we're going to go hiking and we'll leave at 8, 8 a.m. and it's 8.05 and like nobody has pants on in my house. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? I start to get like my dad, right? Mm -hmm. God, God. And my wife is like, why can't you just chill out? Does it matter if we leave at nine? And then I had to start being mindful and aware. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just following down into this routine that has, my dad's not even here. Why, why am I getting all tight about our departure time? And so when you start, you know, you feel your shoulders get tight and tense and all that stuff. And you're like, oh, I'm aware of that. And there's no reason. I'm just going to maybe I'll have a Miller Lite at 8 a.m. and just chill out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that example because it sort of pointed you to something that you could do. Um, you know, so but I guess you have to notice the pattern in order to make a decision about, you know, what you want to do if you want to do something differently. Right. Yeah. I, I was feeling those things mm -hmm. and there was absolutely no reason I had to be feeling those things, right? You know, yeah, so it's 8 a.m. Kids don't have pants on. Kids don't have pants on a lot of times. Like, big deal. True. 
Yep, <laughs> that is true. But you know, the thing that I hear you saying too is that you allowed yourself a moment of curiosity to think, why am I reacting this way? Right? Like, yes, it's fine if we leave at nine, but you also made the connection to your up- upbringing and you could say, oh, I probably learned this somewhere, but it's not actually helping me right now. So that's the benefit of being able to notice what's mm. going on. That's fantastic. You know, I'm thinking about um, some situations that Chris and I have been in with uh, senior leaders and organizations and you know, sometimes senior leaders get very defensive mm-hmm. about, um, you know, particularly if it's some sort of area that they aren't, they don't have a whole lot of expertise in, or they lack some skills. And, you know, if those people maybe just took a moment, a moment of curiosity, I love that, um, about, you know, why am I feeling this way? When people say this, why do I feel really defensive and get angry? I, I think it would benefit a lot of people. Oh, I I agree. I actually think that curiosity is one of the most helpful antidotes to defensiveness. You know, if mm. and if you can pause and just think, hmm, possibly this person has a point, even if it's uncomfortable to imagine that. But to be interested in learning rather than to be interested in defending, I think is is useful. But you have to notice it. Yeah. And, and yeah. societally as well. And and this is something that's been really good for me in trying to open up some of the dialogue around the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. People immediately say, well, what about this? And we got to defend the police. So they, they, and there's this lack of curiosity. And I say, yes. well, man, you know how I'm looking at it is, wait a minute, does another American not feel part of America? That makes me really sad. Why? Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of curiosity immediately changes the dialogue to where we're curious Right or wrong, like I'm not going to make some like definitive statement that every single person in the world has the right ideas about anything on any topic. Mm-hmm. But just that curiosity of, gee, why is why is my boss acting this way? Yeah. And it's we like, can move from judgment to some compassion for another human here, right? Absolutely. And I think it then takes away the adversarial nature of the relationship and kind of puts an interesting problem in between two people for us to, you know, kind of both be curious about and play around with as opposed to we have to fight each other. Um, but that curiosity is a component of mindfulness, actually. Yeah. You know, one idea that uh, ties into this idea of self-talk and mindfulness has to do with kind of the narratives or the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves in our minds and about how we react to different situations. Um, are these things that are are fixed? Can we change them? What, what are your thoughts on yeah. that? Well, I will say that we do tend to have stories, whether they're helpful or not, that stick with us, even if we really try to change them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can. So it's like what I struggled with at 20 and, and 40 and later, you know, I sometimes I get surprised. I'm like, oh, there's that same issue again, even if I've done a lot of work with it. But we still can. Um, shift our stories and change our narratives um, with enough work, even if they pop up again in a problematic way. So, you know, we have stories about what we think about our own competence, about our own likability, about our own self-worth, you know, about the future. And different things can shape those, um, but we can challenge the assumptions that we make in our stories, you know. So I think trauma actually is a good example and it can shape our stories. We can, you know, believe that the world is is safe and then a trauma can disrupt that and we might have a generalized belief after that that the world is dangerous but we can also then go on to collect enough experiences after that to think well maybe it's not entirely dangerous right like maybe there are safe people and safe experiences that I can have so yes some stories can be persistent but we can shape them yeah you know what I'm thinking about when you're talking through 
kind of these stories that we tell ourselves is how rooted it is in or can be in our identity. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking of, you know, the book, Difficult Conversations, about how to have those types of really tough conversations you need to have and how a lot of times when we're trying to have a conversation or going through some conflict or facing some adversity, you know, I, I think in that book, they talk about three different questions that we start to ask ourselves, you know, am I competent? Am I a good person? And am I worthy of love? Yeah. Like those are, and those are huge questions that Absolutely. I think we all face at various points. But to your point earlier, a lot of people don't even recognize that that's what's going on. Yeah. Well, and those are really, I mean, in in the language of a form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, those are really the root of our core beliefs. Mm-hmm. And our core beliefs are shaped by our early experiences. And those core beliefs that we have about our competence and our likability are, you know, underlie our automatic thoughts. So when you look at the pattern of self-talk, likely there's a connection to our core beliefs and our experiences. You know, And you see this with toxic cultures. When I yeah. see a toxic bullying boss or somebody that's just creating havoc, they're generally attacking. They're using those three items to mm-hmm. attack individuals. Yeah. Well, say he's not competent. Why aren't you helping him get competent, you numbskull? <laughs> Let's get on with it. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it's interesting how the attacks go to like a generalized um, description of somebody as opposed to staying with this particular behavior is problematic. We, we attack something that's core about somebody else. And that's really hurtful and not helpful. Right, right. You know, one other thing that you mentioned, um, maybe, you know, talking about these different negative patterns of thought and negative ways of talking to ourselves and all that mind chatter, as they sometimes call it, um, and how it can, it can actually influence your behavior. And then it can be this vicious cycle, right? So Mm -hmm. you, you know, I think you mentioned this idea of uh, maybe you're nervous about going into a meeting or about doing some sort of public speaking or a presentation. Okay, so you're you're maybe telling yourself, oh, I hate this. I, I don't like this. I feel nervous. Oh, you know, I just want this to be over. Then you get in there, and because you're feeling all of that, you know, somebody looked at you, and it's like, oh, they're judging me. And then it's like, oh, oh yeah. you know, I, I messed that up. I'm screwing this up. I'm doing this poorly. And then you actually start doing it poorly, and then maybe mm-hmm. you get some actual feedback afterwards. It's like, hey, that wasn't so great. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this negative self-fulfilling prophecy that, that just makes it worse. So, I, right. you know, I think it's... Um, it can be really powerful to what, you know, what we tell ourselves can be really powerful because it can actually influence our behavior. That's exactly and ben, right. I want to point out something there. You're like, those people are laughing at me. Yet you're not a mind reader. Yeah. Like so much. So I've been through a lot of therapy personally, and it's been awesome because I have control over my mind, right? I don't feel helpless at these things. They're like, there's no way you know what those people are laughing at. Mm-hmm. There's no way you don't even know their competence to even judge you. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly. They could be the biggest dummies in the world. And here you are scared of them because you thought you were a mind reader. Mm-hmm. It's such a great point, right? Like we have to learn to challenge the assumptions that we're making about what in this situation, what other people are thinking of us. But we have to first notice that we're making those assumptions and that we're believing them. And so then we have the opportunity to challenge it and say, you know, they could have just looked at something funny on their phone in that moment, but then we made it about us. Yeah. So let's so, talk about constructive self-talk and dysfunctional self-talk. Mm-hmm. Like what what is the good kind of self-talk and the bad kind of self-talk? What do those look like? Yeah. So they can look like a bunch of different things, but I would say, you know, in general, constructive self-talk is rooted in sort of reality and evidence. Um, it's not based on 
um, our fears or, you know, our hopes or our emotions. It's really kind of just based in sort of what's happening. And we can just be matter of fact. It's, it's like if we make a mistake, I can say, yes, I made that mistake. And this is what I need to do to improve as opposed to dysfunctional self-talk, which is really, um, there's distortion in it. There's bias in it. And it's not very helpful. So there might be some patterns like perfectionism or catastrophizing. I'm, I'm naming some cognitive distortions that characterize it. And what we know is that that sort of dysfunctional or problematic self-talk can really in the example you gave, Ben, lead us into behaviors that aren't actually um, helpful. Yeah. How, now, I'm going to take a step back for a second. You know, why, why is this idea of self-talk, this topic, why is this so compelling for you? What have you seen? What have you experienced that has made it a, an important topic for you to look at? Yeah. Well, you know, I would say I've seen it in my own life, right? So, um, and I've seen it as a therapist and I've seen it as a leader. Um, in my own life, I can remember, actually, this is a, a memory back to the army where I'd be facing, you know, kind of difficult physical challenges and you can't really see me, but I'm kind of a small person. And, and so I'd be facing like these big walls that I have to climb over or something. And I remember thinking, I just have to believe that I can do this because if I allow the conversation in my head to convince me otherwise, then I'm not going to be able to do it. And I remember being in some schools in the army where there were actually calls for people to volunteers to quit. And I thought, I can't entertain that conversation about quitting in my head, then I'm not going to do this. And so I re it was important for me to learn how to coach myself to get through things that were difficult. So I think personally, that's probably where I started to learn to pay attention to it. And then as a therapist, I really had a chance to see how powerful it is, right? Like, especially um, when I'm working with somebody who's really self-critical and it's making themselves miserable, when they can make progress towards being more compassionate towards themselves, it's pretty moving to witness that change in somebody's life and see how that really opens up possibilities for them. And I would say the same thing in leadership coaching, you know, to see you know, help a leader to see how they're coaching themselves in ways that aren't helpful. And then when they learn different ways of relating to their self-talk, and then they learn to take different risks and succeed in different ways and cope with failure more effectively. I mean, I'm just, I love it. I love working with this. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Uh, so we talked about some of these, you gave a few examples of dysfunctional self-talk. Um, and you, you, know, you mentioned perfectionism and catastrophizing. Um, what are some of the other dysfunctional ways that we can talk to ourselves? And, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. So one that a lot of people know about is either or thinking, right? Sort of black and white type thinking. And it's, it's really like a rigid type of thinking where we can get stuck in imagining only two possibilities. So I'm either going to pass this test if I'm a student or I'm going to be a failure at life. You know, and there, there's no in between. And that's I, right. No, I'm just kidding. That, that's not correct. <laughs> Don't be a jack wagon, Chris. <laughs> I cannot tell I'm you sorry. how many. I just couldn't help. <laughs> and you're right. Yeah. I mean, but it's people get stuck there, and it's yeah. like this sort of narrow way of thinking, and they sometimes can't pull themselves out of it, and, and they need help. Um, another sort of problematic way of thinking is being unable to tolerate uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, so really, and this can show up in a lot of ways, but it can show up in 
um, catastrophizing and being convinced that there will be a bad outcome. Because if uncertainty is so uncomfortable, then I might decide I'm just going to believe that something terrible is going to happen. Because even though that's uncomfortable, it's preferable to me than not knowing. So those are a couple of examples. I'll tell you one of my favorites, though, is cognitive fusion. That's kind of a technical term mm. from CBT and ACT, which is it's like an attachment to our own thinking as if it's truth. Like, yes, I <laughs> thought it, so it must be truth. Um, yeah. yeah. Th this affects our political discourse as well. Yes, it does. So, so like, I, and I'll just pick out some example. You voted for Trump. That means you hate gay people. Yeah. What? Well, wait a minute. You don't know like that. There's a whole realm of complexity or or somebody that might be on the right. Um, if you're on the left, that means you hate America mm -hmm. or something. It, yet there's people all across the political spectrum in the military. There's people mm -hmm. all across the political spectrum on any side of the debates. But it's here's the cognitive distortions in our discourse. Right. All or nothing thinking. Right. Yes. And that and that idea of un, intolerance of uncertainty if this person gets elected, we're going to just burn up tomorrow. Hey, yeah. You guys don't know that, right? right. Th and, and here on our show, we just call it stinking thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love that. I love that a lot. <laughs> stinking thinking. Yeah. Hey, so in, in terms of this idea of the inability to tolerate uncertainty, um, you know, there, there actually has been some research looking at this. Some There's some personality components here, right? Tolerance for ambiguity and stuff. But um, do you think that people have been, what, what do you think about COVID, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, the past, you know, year, year and a half have been very challenging for a lot of people and perhaps more so for others. Um, what do you, I mean, what's your observation with regard to self-talk and the uncertainty and change that pretty much everybody has had to go through in some shape or form in the past um, year? Yeah, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. I think that we've all had to face living with large question marks in ways that we might not have been used to doing before for a long time. So I do think that, you know, we can learn to live with uncertainty for periods of time, but we're, we've been living with it for a, a long time. And I think that some people learn how to deal with that more effectively. And, you know, this has been good practice for them. I've also seen a lot of fatigue around this. I am tired of dealing with uncertainty. And so I want answers to any other question that I can get an answer to now. And so there's, you know, it's hard and, and people are dealing with it in different ways. Yeah. So there's a, you got to be kind to yourself. True. You know, it's like, okay, you put up with a week of uncertainty. All right. All right. That might be okay. Okay. But once you get past that year mark, if there's some days you just can't take it and you need to go cry your eyes out, be nice to yourself there. You know, there's <laughs> we are humans. There's only so much that that we can handle. Right. Yeah. And it's been tiring. It's been exhausting, you know, and certainly some folks have um, with COVID in particular had a, a more difficult time than others. But I think even just the awareness of it and the unanswered questions it's wearing on people. And I think you're exactly right. People need to take care of themselves and um, and be compassionate with themselves. That's not something a lot of people do particularly well, but it, it's important. Now, now, let's talk about how what's, let's get out of our head for a minute, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how that self-talk that we're doing within our own minds, how can that actually influence our behavior? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, so, Let's just say there's a form of, you know, a type of self-talk that's characterized by anxiety. 
Um, so I'm afraid of going into this meeting or I'm afraid of this conflict, then often when our self-talk is fearful, then we are more likely to engage in avoidance. And so if I don't like to go to parties because I'm not sure that I'll be socially successful, then I avoid parties. Um, if I don't want to be um, in a conflict, then I avoid conversations. And that's that's problematic. So that's one way that um, it can it can show up. Another type of avoidance, actually, and this is not just related to anxiety, but is related to a number of different emotional states, is kind of daydreaming or checking out mentally. And so we're not paying attention. And sometimes that that numbing or that checking out happens because our, our thoughts are too difficult or painful or the situation's too difficult, but there are costs to, to mentally checking out too. Um, another way it shows up is by not, like, Engaging in, in helpful behavior, like um, if we need to fire a person, right, because they're toxic and we've tried every other solution to develop them and to mentor them. And we know that it's going to be the best for the team to let them go, but they're really good at their job. And so we are afraid of letting them go. And so we might have a self-talk belief that sounds a little bit like, well, my team will fall apart if we don't have this person's skills on the team. And yet at the same time, they might already be falling apart because of the toxicity. So we have to recognize the fear and how that's impacting um, our unwillingness to to let go of someone we need to. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, do we know anything about where our self-talk comes from? Like where, where, where does this originate? Yeah. Um, and I think we've touched on it a little bit, but I think, you know, we can think of self-talk as, as habits, right? So we learn how to talk to ourselves in, in particular ways, and we each have different habits for how we talk to ourselves. And it comes from the sorts of beliefs that we hold about the world and about the future and about ourselves. And so then those beliefs that we hold become like a lens through which we see everything. Um, and that lens really is shaped by our experiences, by what we're told, um, a little bit by biology. Yeah. And, and trauma, as I mentioned, trauma is an important experience that we have to keep in mind that could shape our self-talk. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I immediately go to thinking about parenting, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think as a parent, you're oftentimes thinking about how am I, screw well, at least if you're thoughtful about it, you're thinking about, am I screwing up my kids, right? Yes, right. right. Are, you, are, you, are you repeating the mistakes? The perhaps, answer is you, yes, Ben. <laughs> yes, we are. You, we are. Save we are for all therapy doing for them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Put that, you know, we're saving for your college. We're also saving for your therapy later. Um, So, I, I mean, have have, I guess, your thinking and your research and your study mm -hmm. of all of these topics has that influenced um you know how you think about parenting oh for sure i mean yeah being a psychologist and a parent at the same time <laughs> I, I overthink a lot of things and i'll be able to point to my kids and say that's the moment that i'm going to pay for later that you can just i'll <laughs> highlight it for you and you can talk about it um but but sure i mean the messages that we give to our kids are really powerful and and they can internalize that you know the things that we say can become their self talk uh, they can also um, look at, obviously, look at our behavior and interpret that and then internalize that as messages that they they tell themselves. So there's a bit of pressure um, and we can only do the best that we can. Uh, but, you know, I have been aware that I'm trying to, as best I can, help my kids develop helpful self-talk so that they can um, encourage themselves through life. Yeah. You know, one uh, challenge that I've had with one of my kids is 
um, there's a bit of pro, of uh, perfectionism, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's any component of that that's genetic. I know that was something that I was like that as a kid for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and fortunately have, have gotten better at not being perfect at stuff, but, um, or thinking I had to be, I helped uh, Ben with that. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, Chris Bell, he, <laughs> Since he, I but, can't achieve that, Ben can actually get there. I can't, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's interesting. I just remember one conversation I, I had with, with my little guy talking about like, Hey, you know, um, it's, it's good to fail at stuff because then you learn about it and that kind of thing. And just trying to encourage a different way of thinking. Do you have any other tips or, or, Thoughts for parents out there when it comes to encouraging productive self-talk for children? Yeah, two questions there, actually. Let me (laughs) springboard on that. How do we practice that good self-talk ourselves? And then how do we get that to our kids and maybe people on our teams at work? Even better. Okay, I love it. So I think that what I hear you um, first speaking to, Ben, is kind of a growth mindset, which is when we make mistakes, these are opportunities for learning, right? So this isn't a reflection of your character or a prediction about how you'll perform in the future. Um, we all make mistakes. And in fact, if we can develop a stance of trying hard, but welcoming the opportunity to learn, which can be hard, then um, those are some of the things that we can say to our, our kids and to folks on our team. But I also think it's important to model that. So I can be transparent about my mistakes, um, you know, in a measured way, but you know, my kids and and my team members need to have confidence in me, but I also want to be honest about the fact that I'm human and I make mistakes and how I respond to my own mistakes is important. So if I, you know, beat myself up about it, then that's something my kids see. And they're like, Oh gosh, I guess making a mistake is a bad thing Mm. as opposed to, I'm going to own up to this. And I'm going to say, let me think about what I can do differently in the future. Right. Okay. So there's, because we are evidence-based on this podcast, right? That's and right. two of the primary evidence-based um, therapy modalities. And, and the thing is, right, when you work with the therapist, it's not that they're just going to shrink your brain and then you go out, you're okay. They teach you to shrink yourself, so to speak, right? That's, the, to, yep, that's do, the goal. <laughs> so you can, you don't have to keep, pay, you know, they'd love for you to keep paying them, but the goal is so where you don't have to keep paying them, right? right? So it's cognitive behavioral therapy, and acceptance commitment therapy. So let, let's break down those one at a time. What are they? And kind of maybe hi, high level, how we do those things for ourselves. So let's start with CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, sure. So CBT, um, and it's been around for a while, and I think because it's so effective, it's an evidence-based therapy that emphasizes the relationships among thoughts and feelings and behaviors and it's a therapy that treats a number of mental illnesses, um, depression and anxiety being examples. But it works by helping people modify their thinking and behaviors in ways that can improve their mood and functioning. And so the idea is that we can change our self-talk and we can notice what's unhelpful and learn techniques and skills for challenging it and practicing new thought habits and thought patterns And we can also identify unhelpful behaviors and practice new behaviors. And so that's kind of how CBT works. And it really does help um, in therapy and coaching because it gives people skills to practice. You know, so I can practice emotion regulation, for example, like I can practice even if my anxiety tells me I need to keep talking, I can notice that urge and say, I'm going to practice being silent and tolerating the anxiety that comes along with it. 
Um, and it's 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 also a therapy that helps and a, and a coaching technique that helps with problem solving and identifies barriers that get in the way of effective problem solving. Cool. Now, now let's talk about acceptance commitment therapy. What is that? Yeah. So ACT, um, as it's called, is also an evidence-based like psychological framework and, and set of interventions. And it's different from CBT because instead of focusing on changing our thoughts, it asks us to shift how we relate to our thinking and our self-talk. So we don't change anything. Actually, it asks us to accept what's going on in our mind so that we don't avoid it. Because if we don't accept things, typically we're going to avoid it. But it's particularly helpful, I think, for the kind of persistent self-talk that we can't change, right? It's like if there's a, you know, a radio channel that we're stuck on in our head and it's just negative self-talk all day and we can't change it, we can learn to relate to it differently so that it doesn't affect our mood and doesn't affect our behavior as powerfully as it might. You know, I think of the acceptance commitment therapy as it's like a paradigm for our personal growth. There's the now and the not yet of our personal growth, mm -hmm. right? So we're, when we're at the now, we may have all this, you know, maybe you didn't come from the best family or best background, and you have maybe more luggage that you're carrying around than the next person. Well, that's okay. There's the now where you are with all your baggage and stuff, you're stinking thinking, you haven't figured out things. And mm -hmm. then there's the not yet. But the thing is, is you got to live now, right? That's right. So so the acceptance would be like, okay, I have a lot of stinking thinking, a lot of stuff, a lot of garbage. I'm a new executive. I'm terrified. I'm like, well, that's my now. And I can mm -hmm. just accept that. I see it as just like letting that trout just swim on down the river. Okay. I notice those bad thoughts, those things. I know where I'm at and I'm just going to be okay with that moment. And the cognitive behavioral therapy is, is you starting to grow to the not yet, that person that you want to be. Mm -hmm. And and that it's okay. You can have the bad thoughts and the bad emotions and the anxiety, the depression, all that stuff that goes along on your journey. But, you know, bit by bit, right? I mean, Rachel's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think one 45-minute session with Rachel is going to get you to where you might be if you've been practicing this kind of stuff That's for right. 20, 40, 60 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I think about when you're describing these types of modalities and so forth is, you know, as our listeners know, I, my seven-year-old son was killed in a terrible accident back in November 2020. And, you know, obviously it's one of the worst and most stressful things that can happen to a parent. Um, but, you know, in those weeks and months afterwards, one thing that Chris said to me on a regular basis was like, hey, don't make any decisions about stuff right now. Don't mm -hmm. trust, you know, your decision making um, and just be OK with not being OK for. And, mm -hmm. and that, I mean, you know, and I think that's something that continues for a long time. Um, but I think just recognizing that is helpful. And I think a lot of or I think sometimes other people who go through a traumatic event like that don't really recognize that. And they, they try to pretend like things are okay, or, um, you know, they maybe just don't sit with it, you know? And, and, uh, I've also been told that these types of things take work, right? You're, you're doing the work, you're going through it. And, um, another thing Chris said to me once was, you know, I, I was particularly having a bad day and he's like, well, congratulations, you're a human, right? right. I mean, yeah, I like you're, you're like us. So I'm yeah. hugging you right now, Ben. I like, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. I mean, well, you've lived through one of the, the hardest things and you know, what you're talking about just in terms of not shying away from the full experience of it though, and how important that is, because I think sometimes we can 
add on to the terrible pain of trauma and loss when we um, do avoid the experience of it. it. And so what these sorts of therapies say is, you know, bring it in, even though it's, it's uncomfortable and frightening, and and then we're going to work through it, right? So we will get through it faster if we're, if we're accepting it in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing, like, and one way that I've tried to reframe, you know, mm-hmm. some of my thinking is, well, so for example, I took um, took command of a of a new Navy Reserve unit back in March. And so this is like, you know, four months after this thing and um, had to talk to, you know, the people I was leading and introduce myself. And, you know, natural question is, do you have kids yeah. and those kinds of things? And so I had to prepare myself for how I was going to talk about that. Um, and, you know, I, I just laid it out there. I, I said, you look, you know, I, I have four kids. Um, my seven-year-old will always be seven because he died in a terrible accident back in November. I'm dealing with that. And, and it was amazing to see the, you know, then we went around and everybody else talked about themselves and they were all opening up about, you know, things in their life. Cause they saw that me showing that vulnerability of, uh, what was really going on with myself. And I, I think it was, it was actually a powerful moment. And I, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to reframe this as having, you know, instead of, well, obviously something terrible happened in my life, but also having a leadership superpower now that yes. I, I, I understand what grief looks like and how to <laughs> deal with it. I can talk to people in an intelligent way. That's not going to, you know, that's not going to make it worse. I know that you shouldn't um, necessarily like, you know, isolate those people. Don't run, don't, don't, don't play the tricks thinking, oh, they just need some space, you know, make, go say something, do <laughs> something. Right. And um, so, you know, I, I think that's just kind of maybe an example of, of trying the self-talk thing and it can be very helpful. And the other point I want to make is that, hey, you know, yeah, obviously a dramatic, um, uh, rare, uh, exceptional thing happened to me. And here's the thing. We all go through losses. We all experience pain in our lives. And it could be maybe a parent who dies or someone you know. Uh, and these types of events in our lives have real implications for us in our personal lives, but also in our professional lives. Um, the leaders that you have at work, they go through these types of issues. You as a leader go through these types of issues. So I think there is a direct connection between how we deal with all of this stuff that happens as part of the human experience and our behavior in the workplace. Yeah. And I, I see CEOs with this kind of uh, mentality. It's this idea that I'm in the CEO seat, so I should have all these skill sets. I should be a fully formed, awesome CEO. Maybe I'll struggle a little bit with some of the public speaking, but as far as knowing how to manage all the functions, do all the things, recruit and attract amazing, insane talent, I should just have those. And it's that lack of, to Rachel's point earlier, that growth mentality. Um, if you go into that zone and feel your identity threatened when you don't have those core, core skill sets or you're around somebody that is better at it than you are, then you can't actually say, oh, wait, here's where I am. Here's the 10 things I need to get to next to be awesome, right? So, um, Rachel, let's move to, you know, we always like to bring it down to where implications for individuals, leaders, and organizations, or as Ben likes to say, people, because apparently individuals are people, <laughs> right? So, so for people, what are some of the things that you would say to take from self-talk and the ACT and the CBT type therapy modalities that they can use in their life right now to improve what's going on? Well, 
I think I'll start with um, piggybacking off of a message that I heard and what Ben was just saying, which is we have to take care of ourselves as people in order to be good leaders, right? So we, and paying attention to our self-talk is one way in which we pay attention to our well-being. Um, and so as people, we can start to pay attention to what our self-talk looks like. You know, we don't necessarily have to get a yoga mat in order to practice mindfulness. We can just, <laughs> you know, start to notice our thoughts. And, and it is a practice. It's not like a light switch. Now I notice them. It's something we have to keep doing and doing again. So that's one thing that we can do as just individuals. And we can learn to be curious about our own thinking. You know, I'm just, oh, wow, I'm being hard on myself today. I wonder what that's about. And and just start to ask some questions or why am I predicting that I'm going to fail? Um, do I have any evidence to back that up? You know, that's kind of a, a basic CBT strategy that we can start to incorporate into our daily life. And then I think there are a bunch of great strategies from acceptance and commitment therapy that help us deal with those sort of persistent thoughts and feelings that we just have to live with um, in order to, as you know, I love Chris, your analogy around just watch the trout, you know, going down the stream. Like we have to just let things be there sometimes when they don't change right away. And ACT, if for folks who are curious about it, is full of metaphor. And so it's really just a matter of finding the metaphor and the story that works for you in terms of allowing uncomfortable experiences to, to be there when you can't um, change them. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Now, let me resonate. There's a book that I'm a real big fan of called The Chimp Paradox. Are you familiar with this book? Is this kind of about the mind? I, I don't know that I've read it. Yeah, it's a mind management um, model. So you mm -hmm. can think about how your mind. One of the things I do is people say, don't do negative self-talk. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things like if I'm really nervous before I go into a meeting or a clutch piece is um, I do some negative self-talk, actually, to the point of obtuseness. Right. So somebody to say, don't be, oh, oh, what, what's wrong? Oh, I'm so nervous about this job interview I have. Oh, well, don't be nervous. You'll be fine. Oh, thanks. Now that you told me not to be nervous, <laughs> I'm just magically not nervous. Jack wagon. Come on. They, they, that doesn't work. Don't be nervous. Oh, look, I'm not nervous now. That's not how it works. I have to have some emotional release. So for me, I'm like, I'm the worst consultant ever. I am horrible. I have, I am bald. I am. And eventually you try to trash talk yourself for more than 30 seconds. You run out of curse words. You run out of bad thing. And then what? And then it, the obtuseness of your thinking becomes apparent. You're like, well, maybe I'm not the best consultant in the world, but I can't be the worst. Come on. Right. <laughs> I love that strategy a lot in part because it shows you sort of the extremeness of our fears sometimes, but it also, um, it make it desensitizes you to it. And that's part of what happens in acceptance and commitment therapy too, is we can start to take away the power of language. You know, we have words and, and phrases that can sort of trigger us into emotional states, but if we repeat them and we repeat them, they lose their power. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, um, when you talk about becoming more aware of your own thinking, um, I guess, what does this look like? Do I, do I just like carve out 15 minutes and go sit somewhere and go, all right, I'm thinking about my thinking <laughs> or, or what, what do you, what do you I, I'm just curious. Like what, I mean, maybe that is a strategy. I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? So actually, yeah, I mean, you do have to intend to think about your thinking. I think it could be 15 minutes. It could be a minute. And hmm. so when I'm um, encouraging leaders and, and clients, I just say, before you go into something important, just pause and 
do kind of a little inventory of what's happening in you. And you might not be able to shift it, but at least you're aware of it and you know what you're working with. So just pause, step back in your own brain, notice what's happening in your thinking. You know, am I just racing? Am I worrying about something that's outside of what's happening right now? Just notice it so you can deal with it, accept what's happening in your body and in your emotions. Then you know where you are. And you can make a specific intention around what to do next. So it can take a minute. Yeah, and that's good. I think because sometimes, like you hear about people who are all into meditation, and you know, they apparently, you know, maybe on the outside seem like they have all this stuff really figured out. It's like, man, ain't nobody got time for that. Like, so I, I like your your thought that <laughs> hey, it could just could just take a minute of mm-hmm. of pausing, reflecting, and, and uh, you know, figuring out a strategy forward. So so that's great. Um, so those are some great items that I think people can think about at the individual level. How can this help me? Um, What are your thoughts about the connection here with leadership and with how leaders can perform and maybe use some um, some of these self-talk techniques to be better? Right. So I think um, when we're coaching leaders that we can really encourage leaders to be curious about how they're talking to themselves and notice how that's affecting their team notice how that's affecting how they show up in leadership because there is a link but they have to start to see that and then once they're able to start to see gosh i tend to um either be overly positive or um not humble enough and this is how it affects my team um is there a way that i can talk to myself differently then they can start to make some changes um and i also think that leaders can sometimes say well Um, they can distrust this method a little bit at times, and and we all can, but we have to look for the kernel of truth in our unhelpful self-talk too. So we don't want to just challenge a thought away. We can say, well, maybe there's a reason you're worried about this, but it might not, the fear you have might not be as big as you imagine it to be. And so if there's a kernel of truth, how do we deal with that? But then let's also try to deal with the distortion um, that, that you're experiencing too. So it's really helping them make the connection between what they're thinking and what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. And and that connection is real. I mean, there is research that su- supports this. Um, I was actually involved in one research study that I, I helped uh, with a, a number of years ago where we we had letters that executives had written to themselves and they, they were part of a leadership development program. At some point in the program, they they did this thing where they wrote a letter to themselves. And then we also had uh, their self ratings, peer ratings and um direct report ratings of their performance and other types of things. So we had 360 assessment data on them. We also had their um, their own letter to themselves, which is kind of a form of self-talk, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the, the prompts that they were given to do this thing. And so we went through, we analyzed a couple hundred of them and looked for basically, you know, was it constructive versus um, dysfunctional self-talk? And then, um, then did some quantitative types of analyses to look at the connection between that and their own leadership performance and other types of items. Now, um, you know, it's not a perfect methodological, you know, study, but there, you know, there's some issues here and some limitations, but we can say that there is, there, there does seem to be this connection between how people talked about themselves. Like the more positive self-talk tended to correlate with higher performance. Um, you know, the, the more negative self-talk tended to correlate with lower performance as well as higher stress and all ki- types of other items that were not helpful. So um, dealing with this can have real impact for you as a leader. 
Yes, it can. And I actually, I love that, you know, when, when I'm working with a leader who is interested in growing in that way and, and brings curiosity to their um, internal experience, there's a lot that can happen and uh, they're willing to take risks when, when they're willing to notice what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And just so our listeners know, Ben and I practice this stuff. I mean, this is why we wanted to have Rachel on because she comes from a professional background, but we are not psychotherapists ourselves. But we own a lot of this stuff. Two things that I want to add to that piece for leaders here is one, you know, that kernel of truth. Well, if there's a kernel of truth, your job as a leader is to come up for a plan for you guys to win despite your shortcomings. Right. If you know, hey, let's say it wasn't just a kernel of truth. Let's say all your stinking thinking was completely true. Well, your job as a leader is how do we win with all this being true? Yeah, it's it's not for time to take my ball and go home and not be a leader anymore. I'm just not going to go to work today. I'm just going to no call, no show that you don't get to do that, guys. You stepped up to the plate. Good. Take your at bat, but plan a way to win despite those negative things about yourself, because we all have them. Second one is in the realm of decision making. And this is a, like kind of a bit of a gerrymander here. <laughs> when people, so Ted, which we're going to put a link, Rachel just did a TEDx talk, and I want to highlight that. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes. Go check that out. But one of the things that happens in TED talks is you get an, a visceral emotional response, right? Same thing when you're talking. So when I need to go be aware, my trigger for me to start being aware of my self-talk is whenever I feel emotions, good or bad right? Because when the emotion piece is going, the part of your brain that's super rational and logical, it's probably not completely in the driver's seat, right? Mm -hmm. So just think of the salesman that comes like, oh, look, if you buy this software for your company, for your HR department, look, it has a cup holder armrest. The CEO will cheer you, right? You're, you're feeling all these good positive. We've kind of focused on the negative affect here, mm -hmm. but even having a bunch of positive emotions, you know, you're, analytical brain's not in the driver's seat. So be wondering, okay, I'm feeling positively. I'm going to wait and decide on this after I've rationally gone through the pros and cons. Or, hey, I'm feeling real negative. I'm going to observe those negative feelings, maybe write some notes, and then go think about them when I'm not hijacked by an emotional response in my own mind. I love that a lot. And I think that the way you just described emotion is important, right? Because emotion is useful and it, and emotions are data, but when they're taking over our rational thinking, then that's the problem. That's great. So let's pivot now and talk a little bit more at the organizational level in terms of some implications of having healthy self-talk and, and all these types of items that we've discussed. What can organizations do perhaps to promote healthier self-talk? Well, I think about... Um, culture and how we can create a culture that destigmatizes um, what we would call negative self-talk, right? So if somebody's talking about a difficult event that they've experienced in their lives, just create room for that, which Ben, as a leader, you did that. Um, you created room for it. Um, and we can also create a culture that welcomes, you know, regulated emotions so that we're not asking people to show up in a robotic way. And then when we have that kind of an open sort of a culture, then we create space for people to talk about what their self-talk is. And so then we have an opportunity to coach our leaders. So it's about creating a culture that allows for discussion of this. So that's one of the things that we can do. Do you think there's anything that 
can uh, can help in terms of training or other types of aspects that could help with self-talk? Sure. I mean, I think explicit um, training around growth mindset is useful and training around resilience is useful. Um, you know, these are skills that we can learn in terms of how to relate to our self-talk differently. I also think that we're also talking about mental health, right? So when we can create a value in an organization around emotional well-being and mental health, then that will likely say we're going to have some trainings like this and we're going to make resources available to our employees when their self-talk is now so problematic that it's it's led to depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can be paying attention to that if we've got a value around mental health in the organization. So this might be going back to the individual level, but I'm just curious, like if you're sitting there as a person, you're thinking, yeah, I got a lot of negative self-talk. At what point would you recommend for that person to go talk to somebody, get some professional help? Well, I think it's when you notice that there is a persistent effect on your mood and if there's a persistent effect on your behavior and on your relationships. And so we all have bad days, but if the bad days are starting to add up, then don't wait too long. Because I think, you know, in certain cultures um, where there's a stigma around mental illness, we wait too long because we think we have to figure it out ourselves or you know, that depression is a character flaw or something like that. But if, if the bad days are starting to stack up, then go talk to somebody before it gets to a crisis point. Yeah. yeah. And and get some books. What are some books on cognitive behavioral therapy that a leader that maybe feels fine and just came up in a great environment and doesn't have any stinking thinking? They're just kind of good on default, but they, they could benefit from knowing about this stuff to help people in their org out. What are some books you'd recommend that they pick up and read? Well, I can probably put some in, in the notes, but a lot of my the ones I have in mind are probably a little bit more therapy-based. Um, but I've recently been reading about um, mindfulness and leadership. So the mindful leader, I think, is a really good starting point. Um, you know, it just helps lay out the value of, you know, the secular understanding of mindfulness and leadership. So that might be a good starting point. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, we're talking about cognitive distortions, right? When your brain's not going right, all or nothing thinking, those kinds of things. Let's talk about having those kind of mental models at the organizational level, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, one of these might be, say, stability versus transformation. Like, let's just explore that a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, this shows up in us in individuals, it shows up in organizations where we get caught in a struggle Um and we can fight each other around ideas that both have merit, right? So stability has benefits, but also change and transformation have benefits. But people are sometimes more comfortable in one or the other. And, you know, when we have discussions around what are our values in an organization, we can say, well, how do we leverage the strengths of both? How do we leverage the strengths of stability and transformation so we don't have to get stuck in either or thinking? We can be in the best of both worlds. And I think that bringing some curiosity, and you know, this is the language of polarities, um, which I love, Barry Johnson and and polarities is really great for organizations, but noticing these polarities then can open up conversations. Are we arguing about the needs of our individual employees versus the needs of our organization? Well, what if both are important? How do we pay attention to both at the same time so that we're not having to choose between the two? And there's just an endless number of polarities that we could talk about, but it's just knowing which ones are operating in your organization. Wonderful. Um, you know, I think we've already mentioned culture a little bit, but are there any other specific cultural norms that 
or you see as particularly problematic or beneficial in organizations with regard to these items? Well, I mean, we, we've talked about um, the fact that there are some organizations that don't welcome emotion. I think we have to pay attention to that. We need to value compassion. We need to value the expression of emotion. I guess I'm also thinking about we can do a lot of work on self-talk and leadership leadership self-talk, but we also have to pay attention to the structure of organizations and the ways in which contextual factors, um, if they are problematic, then we can only do so much work on self-talk, but some people won't succeed if there are barriers to their success that are systemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a belief, for example, that any of us can succeed if we try hard enough. Well, that's true. We want to value persistence and hard work, but you know the deck is stacked against some um, populations and, and groups of folks who didn't have the same privileges as others. And so, if we're not working to undo those sorts of barriers, then the idea of persistence and hard work isn't useful, really. Wonderful. So we've talked a lot about about a lot of different items related to self talk and this idea of of how it affects leadership and so forth. Um, what else would you want our listeners to, to know about this topic? And I'll let you have the last word here, Rachel. Well, I like to go back to this, the way you open, just in terms of that this is really something that should create hope. You know, this is something that we can work with. Um, we have, we don't, as I said, have control always of our circumstances, but we can work with ourselves to cope with what we're challenged with and to just do the best that we can um, to cope with it well. And managing and accepting our self-talk is a really powerful strategy to do that. Well, Rachel Wernicke, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor having you as part of the Indigo Podcast. This has been super fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.